0: Welcome back to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. As many of you are aware, this past year has have seen a number of scandals and crises involving the Veterans Administration and those who depend upon its services. Many wartime veterans from as far back as the Second World War continue to rely upon the VA's clinical systems for ongoing medical and psychiatric care, systems which are in dire need of repair. Our guest today focuses on the historical antecedents of America's troubled relationship with our disabled veterans. In his book, Pain With Their Bodies, American War and the Problem of the Disabled Veteran, historian John Kinder considers the question of the nature and extent of the nation's obligations to disabled veterans and how the answers are in turn affected by two competing views of war and its place in our society. John's work is a standout in an area of research that is witnessing something of a revival over the last decade and is absolutely representative of some of the latest thinking in the war and society genre. John, thank you for joining us at New Books of Military History.
1: And thanks for having me, Bob.
0: Yeah, before we dive into the book itself, I'd like to pose to you one of the questions you opened with in your introduction to help frame our discussion for our listeners. How exactly do American pledges to quote support troop support the troops match up with the actual deed itself?
1: Uh, well, I think that really depends upon uh, the war. I think Americans overall like to think that they are very much supportive of the troops, um, and they like to believe that theirs is a country that uh, honors. Uh, the promises it makes to those who put on uniform and serve, uh, in the nation's name. However, as I say throughout the book, and I think, uh, would be obvious not only to any disabled veteran, but, uh, to anyone who sort of studies this topic, it's quite clear that there's often a, a gap, sometimes a gulf between what we say we do, what we think we do, uh, and what actually takes place uh, mm-hmm. in in some wars uh, it seems the uh, gap is not quite as large you know we the United States has invested really billions of dollars in helping disabled veterans both um, past and in the present uh, and yet as I try to show throughout the book it's frequently not enough um, very often uh, for a variety of structural reasons and political reasons and cultural reasons, uh, we think we are doing far more than we are actually doing. Uh, and the reasons why, you know, are, are part of the dilemma of why we, you know, think we're doing something that we're actually not is, is sort of what, what drove me to this topic in the first place.
0: Okay, okay. You know, before we get to that, I, I kind of wonder, you know, as we talk about this disconnect between rhetoric and action, you know. I mean, is there a relationship between that, you think, and perhaps our own conflicted views, you know, our, our society's conflicted views of the place of a standing military in a society that traditionally has placed more value on the idea of the cult of the citizen-soldier and individual responsibility?
1: That certainly is something that I, I saw a lot of, you know, early in my research, you know, basically the story of one of the big stories of America and American citizenship is that, you know, when wartime comes, you know, there's a combat upon all the citizens to, you know, rally to the nation's defense. This is the classic model of the citizen soldier uh, over the course of the 19th and especially into the 20th century, we begin to see that model break down. Um, and it breaks down along a number of different lines so that today uh I would argue that we've actually abandoned that model right, mm-hmm. with the all professional force. Uh we basically suggested that you know war is a job best done to the uh by the professionals, right? And so it is no longer incumbent upon us uh as citizens to take up arms uh in the nation's defense. But, you know, it is incumbent upon us to actually help those who have done so, or at the very least, ensure that those who have done so um, receive the care and the treatment uh, that they feel they have earned. Right. Um, and this is, again, a very different model from the notion that, you know, you take up arms and when war is done, you go home with no expectation of anything else. This is... You know, the the benefit is that you, you live in the nation, that you are a democratic citizen. That's, that's all you should uh, expect, not money, not care, not social privileges, nothing else. Today, we live in a very different world.
0: Very much so. Well, let's turn to the book, and you kind of raised this a few moments ago. What exactly prompted you to pursue this project?
1: Um, well... A couple of reasons, uh, as I talk about early in the book, um, I have epilepsy, and when I was diagnosed with epilepsy as a teenager, I was given a a pamphlet which I call the Great Epileptics of History, um, which essentially, you know, by my doctor, which essentially told me that, you know, look at these great figures: the Apostle Paul, Julius Caesar, all these people who've had epilepsy in the past. You know, they overcame their um, disabilities, and thus you can too uh, but the more and, and so I had always had a kind of tie to or an interest in interest in disability issues uh, uh by the time I got to college, you know um I had you know, basically gone to high school during um the Gulf War and was you know had that on my mind um and I had a you know as someone who grew up in the aftermath of vietnam um, that was always part of my mind so i always had this you know fascination with war uh and so by the time i got to grad school both of those things uh seemed to have come together and and what really intrigued me was the question of how the disabled veteran could be a figure that could serve as both uh broadly speaking a pro war icon and an anti-war icon how those who would promote war promote militarism promote national service could embrace the disabled veteran as a sign of why we must fight but also how uh you know those who oppose militarism those who oppose uh imperial expansion or any kind of you know uh, aggressive foreign policy might also uh, take to the disabled veteran, the figure of the disabled veteran, the image of the disabled veteran uh, as a reason and an argument against uh, future conflict. And so I was, I had my fascination with war. I had my personal experience with epilepsy. And I had this question about this, this figure of the disabled veteran. Um, over time, that became a bit more complicated as I moved from where I added, you know, uh, actual disabled veterans, social history, to what at the time was essentially a, a kind of cultural history mindset, thinking about these images. Um, and that sort of spawned the whole project. And once I started really getting to see what happened to actual disabled veterans, um, you know, uh, that just sort of pulled me into it even more. Okay, okay.
0: Well, you know, up front and center in the book is this idea you raise of, and I'm quoting from you, the problem of, of the disabled veteran. Um, you know, you, you establish that as, as a kind of like a catch-all construction for the issues related to the veteran, of course, but also of society and relating to them. Do you want to comment on that, you know, how you developed that, how you how you came to use that as a, a analytical or narrative device?
1: Sure, and and... In some ways, that's actually what my book is all about. Uh, you know, it involves disabled veterans. It, it involves the image of the disabled soldier, but it's really about that this idea, which went by the name of the problem of disabled veterans. Uh, and my thinking was uh, driven by other books I had read about different. Broad social, cultural, political problems identified with specific time periods. Say, the problem of the juvenile delinquent in the right. 1950s and so forth. Um, when I began my research, uh, I kept coming across this term, literally, uh, the problem of the disabled veteran, or it went by another, a couple of other names, the problem of the crippled soldier, the problem of the wounded, uh, soldier, that sort of right. thing. Uh, and, it became clear that when people were talking about this in the 1920s and during World War I, they weren't just talking about um, what actually would happen to disabled veterans or how to cure them. They were thinking about disabled veterans uh, as a kind of problem population, one that would need to be fixed and solved, resolved, if the United States were going to be a healthy nation in the 20th century, and uh, to avoid many of the uh, anxieties and social issues associated with the aftermath of the Civil War, so by the time Americans were entering World War I, there were a lot of people social scientists, artists, politicians who were invoking this thing, this, this broad social crisis, which they named the problem of the disabled veteran. Uh, and it was a, a, a social problem, an economic problem, in some ways a foreign policy problem, a military problem. And my book, you know, in many ways, it, is all about how uh, these people began to conceive of this problem of disabled veterans and how various groups, um, government rehabilitationists, uh, uh, disabled veterans groups, uh, anti-war activists, and so forth, took to this disabled veteran problem and started, you know, offered up their own solutions to it. And and that's kind of what, what I try to uh, talk about. Okay.
0: Well, it's interesting too, because there also seems to be almost like this moral dimension, uh, which raises again, comparisons to other episodes or, or other belief systems in American history, going back to the colonial period about the morality of disability. Um, the social morality, as well as the individual morality of that, uh, do you see that coming into play with the questions of the disabled veteran?
1: Sure, and really to sort of begin to understand this problem, and, and as I say, you know, uh, uh, or as it becomes clear to anyone who's read the book, um, most of my book is focused on World War One, right? Um, which uh, you know I think of as a the place where we begin to see modern attitudes and policies toward disabled veterans evolve and become institutionalized in the United States. And I'm, I'm not the only one Beth Linker um, uh, whose book Wars Waste kind of talks about this as well. Yeah. I just uh,
0: caveat things- hit there. We did interview Beth some months ago. It was a great interview. Yeah, sure. but a very
1: good book. And, and uh, you know, I think I'm one of a number of people who've begun to kind of, Reevaluate World War I as a sort of turning point in the relationship between war and society. Um, so having said all that, um, to understand World War I, you really have to understand uh, the aftermath of the Civil War, right. where you have uh, hundreds of thousands of Union veterans who came home who were politically organized, were able to win. Uh, very substantial concessions from the state in terms of pensions, in terms of old soldiers' homes, um, and so that by the turn of the 20th century, you have a number of people—the people who would begin to talk about the problem of disabled veterans—not only saying that uh, if we have another war of this scale, you know, our country is going to be bankrupted. Um, that if we're going to have war in the 20th century, we can't follow this old pensions and soldiers' home model of relief anymore. But they also began to talk about how the disabled veteran in itself was a problem figure. Um, they, you know, uh, believed that at the time that one's masculinity and worth as a man was very much tied to uh physical and, more importantly, economic independence. Mm-hmm. So here you have hundreds of thousands of Civil War vets who were, in theory, dependent upon the state. And this was going to cause not just, this was not only uh, emasculating to them, but it was also going to breed uh, all kinds of social problems in the future. You know, And they talked about this, how it would spread social diseases and lethargy uh, and even lead to uh, socialism and mm-hmm. all these kinds of things that they worried that this you know, Civil War era solution of pension uh, was actually going to weaken the spine of the nation, uh, emasculate the nation, uh, turn uh, these former heroes into little more than crippled wards of the state.
0: You know, it's right. interesting, it's because been- it's that's almost like a counter to the other ideological point you hear raised during that time, about the need for martial virtues because the American male was becoming emasculated by the lack of some kind of great crucible of 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 determination and action that war represented. You know, we see sure. that in the writings of, of Teddy Roosevelt and others. You're presenting this thing from another perspective, which, you know, I think is really important because it vocalizes that same style of rhetoric to the opponents of that kind of militarized culture.
1: Well, there, you do have uh, opponents um, making those kinds of claims, but you also have uh, people like Teddy Roosevelt making those kinds of claims. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, who, you know, pops up throughout this book. I mean, you know, he basically believed that uh yes, uh men needed you know, to fight. They needed to engage in the strenuous life in order to uh uh push back against the uh degrading influence of peacetime society. Uh and yet he also recognized, too, that you know, if men fought, there would inevitably be injury. Right. So you know they needed to fight, they needed to you know test their blood in war, but at the same time, as soon as war was over, they needed to uh avoid these kinds of these the the past experience of the civil war veteran of essentially living the rest of your life in say you know a state of disability or in a in a soldier's home in fact, it was incumbent upon you to continue the fight um by restoring uh, the manhood that might have been lost by disability. And so Teddy Roosevelt would be not only uh, a pro-war advocate, but of course a major advocate of soldiers' rehabilitation. Right. And, and he saw those as actually being deeply connected, that if you're going to have war in the 20th century, um, you couldn't have Civil War-style uh, veterans' programs. You had to have something modern. But he wasn't interested at all in giving up war. He just wanted to find a solution to the problem of the disabled veteran.
0: Yeah, he and so many other militarists at the time,
1: I imagine, yeah.
0: as well. Yeah. You know, I want to turn for a second to the, the methodology you use in the construction of the book, you know, how you introduce each chapter, really, with one of a series of short vignettes, that you know a case study that identifies a specific veteran struggle with a specific disability. Within a specific frame of time, mm-hmm. um, you know. I got to say, first of all, each of these are very evocative, and they're they're great bookends or introductions to the chapters. But what was the process for you as a writer and as a researcher to balance your, you know, your your mandate as a historian to craft meaningful analysis with this desire to incorporate these vignettes? I'm just just wanting for our listeners' sake.
1: No, I mean that. I I love talking about sort of how these books are written because you know these are the kinds of things that I really struggle with. I'll admit um, I was inspired by John Dos Passos and wow. his USA trilogy and the way he uh, uses these little poetic sketches and vignettes, you know, at the very beginning of, of chapters to really sort of. Spec- set the mood, uh, uh, introduce themes, right, make pointed critiques and so forth. Um, you know, and, and so that's kind of what I had in my mind, right? I I didn't, I don't feel like I achieved that. I, I, I couldn't <laughs> quite pull it off. Not at the uh, level of
0: a yeah. dos passos.
1: <laughs> no, no, I mean, but, but sort of that's what I was striving for, in part because, you know, I wanted to, I recognized something that someone told me, very early in my research, um, this was then uh I was I was a foc- I was foc- focusing on this um largely as a cultural uh history project and someone told me, Well, you know, these are people too. They're not just kind of figures, they're not just sort of problems. These are actual men and women who have gone through uh tremendous pain, you know, are suffering uh uh and Tremendous anxieties, right? And, and so I recognize even in the writing, you know, sometimes when you, you write about, I'm, at some level, I mean, I'm writing about a population that at minimum, uh, has over 200,000 people. Right. So every time I write something about disabled veterans, I know that I'm drawing a bit of a generalization, right? I'm trying to kind of talk about big groups. I'm talking about, um, representative figures and so forth, but I, I recognize there are a lot of people, you know, falling through the cracks and it's easy to kind of talk about them, uh, uh, employing a rhetoric of policy analysis and so forth. So I really wanted to, uh, use these opening vignettes to kind of, if not give a, a bit of a human story, but mm-hmm. to remind the reader, and to remind myself that these are actual people. That when I talk about wounds, I'm not talking about sort of these abstractions. I'm talking about literally the you know broken flesh and bleeding bodies, and uh, you know the uh, snapped bones and the uh, misery that so many people suffered. And just reminding you each time of something that happened at an individual, a specific place. Something that happened to a specific person um, would just be a good way of, of kind of bringing this back down to an individual level. Even if I did it, you know, for two pages per right. chapter, or you know, so. That's kind of what I had in mind. I, you know, I'm. You're never quite sure whether you pull it off or not, but you know, this is what I was aiming for. Um, so that that's.
0: Well, I've, I've got to tell you. I mean, I think it was very powerful in the first case. Oh, Secondly, you. you know, but. You're welcome. Uh, it does, it's important, I think. I wish a lot more historians working in our fields would consider about the human level and you know, the, the cost and the impact of these decisions and conflicts we write about rather than talking about them either in the abstract, like you're, you're describing, you know, like, like a policy analysis piece, or even like your more traditional drum and trumpets approaches. Where, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of, you know, those writers tend to overlook or downplay the very real human cost, and it puts a face to these issues i mean i i'm I'm dwelling on this because again i'm I'm very impressed by the technique, and I would like to see more do it frankly
1: i, I you know I can ask you uh i you know when I was writing this book, I find myself you mentioned the uh, uh, you know, the kind of uh you know, traditional or at least the popular uh military history rhetoric i find that it was so easy to lapse into that, you know, particularly when I was, you know, sketching out battles or sketching out sort of the broad movement of uh, American troops during World War One. It's so easy to start talking about charged across the field or, you know, the fields of fire. It's, it's so easy to kind of uh, fall into that very yeah. familiar military history rhetoric that I I sometimes had to stop myself because it was just always there at the surface.
0: It is. I mean, there, there's such literary conventions I think too that we kind of gravitate toward because you know that's how we for centuries have have described military action. And mm-hmm. not saying it's wrong. I mean, but I no. think you know there's also a need to balance that with a reflection upon the cost. And again, just my personal two cents to the field for whatever that's worth. (laughs) Let's let's go on to the the, the meat of the book. And again, you're talking about the First World War primarily after introducing the questions about the disabled veteran following the American Civil War. I want to ask, you know, how do you think the flow of information about the war, even before America enters it, affected how Americans understood the impact of combat on the men sent in the harm's way.
1: Well this is this is interesting um, because I might go out a bit uh go out on a limb a bit here uh, because when I was researching sort of Americans understanding of you know or predictions about injury during war during the war uh or pre US intervention I just kept finding a lot of information, and yet the story had often been told was a a very familiar story of disillusion and ignorance. That is, Americans were the innocents abroad. They had no idea what they were getting into. They got over there, saw the bloodshed, saw the horror, and came back disillusioned. Um, And in my mind, or what my research at least points to, is the idea that I don't think that was the case when it came to injury. Americans were fascinated with injury. They were following, you know, they had films, they had photographs, they had illustrations, they had poetry, they had statistics in newspapers. Um, They had all this kind of information that was making it quite clear that a lot of people were getting uh, injured Mm -hmm. um, during World War I and that this was really a bloodbath going on. What what was interesting was how that started to change once the United States actually uh, got involved. Right, before you know, people who were against U.S. intervention were uh, deeply interested in putting about a uh, the ugliest you know face on the war possible, right, to highlight all the injury, all the death, so forth. Once the U.S. actually got involved in the war, of course. a lot of that um, dropped out of the picture. And in fact, what you got were these very interesting, uh, uh, what I call safe war narratives or safe war stories that basically made the claim that, well, it used to be a very deadly and disabling war. But by the time the United States gets over to Europe in you know, late 1917, early 1918, the war will be safe. Um, a lot of the... Uh, You know, the madness of the early years will have faded away. Um, A lot of medical techniques that were uh, just being tried out in 1914 and 1915 have now been perfected. And you would find these articles in the newspaper saying things like, you know, essentially your life on the uh, Western Front is about as safe as life in New York City. (laughs) You know, it's you know, so don't worry if your son gets drafted, you know, he's going to be fine over there, you know? And so you, you get this downplaying of injury, uh, once the United States actually gets involved. But until then, you know, Americans, I, I don't quite think they were the innocents abroad, at least not those who went to the movies or read the newspaper or picked up a magazine. There was, there was plenty of injury on display.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, you also think back too, even going back to the American civil war, um, you know, there's quite a market for that kind of imagery. You know, Matthew mm-hmm. Brady photos and and gory pictures and such related to war. It's almost like a war pornography industry that takes yeah. shape in 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 the at the time of the Civil War, and I imagine as well up until 1917, with regards to American consumption of of war news.
1: That you would that's exactly the case. But when you would really see that would be in the late 1920s and 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about sort of several groups that try to resolve the problem of the, of the disabled veteran, and one group um, broadly conceived is the peace movement of the 1930s and I talk about how you know this peace movement of the 1930s when we think about peace movements, we often think about the Vietnam generation, but this peace movement in the 1930s um, you know touched basically every aspect of american life sure. and one thing that the peace movement uh, they didn't agree on a lot of things, but one thing that they really agreed upon was the idea that if people were able to see what they called the horrors of war, um, which was usually the you know, mangling and uh, disabling of soldiers' bodies, if they could see them in photographs, if they could see them in person, if they could see them in art, if they could read about them, then they would turn against war.
0: Right, this so is uh, I, the war against war exactly. kind of uh, yeah. trope.
1: Yeah, and it's, and it's, you know, there's you know, obviously the very, you know, famous, you know, horror photo album, War Against War, um, but there were a number of copycats and a sure. number of sort of secondary um, albums that I talk about, and there were, you know, peace poster contests in which, you know, high school kids across America had to design posters that would be turned into... Uh, stamps, you know, and they would you know, win contests, often by drawing the goriest pictures of war, and there would be kids' magazines and kids' toys That's designed perfect to
0: sort of, for a 12-year-old kid, you know, turn exactly. them loose and you know, make the goriest picture you can of war, oh, they would love that oh,
1: And that's, that's, you know, and, and I, I talk about sort of n- near the end of that discussion, how, you know, on the one hand I think, you know, this all of this anti war art and photography is very powerful and it's coming from, you know, a very genuine place. Um, and it, it was a very useful reminder that, you know, as m- memories of war faded, you know, mm-hmm. let's not you know replace them with these kind of jingoistic or adventure stories that you still would get some in the nineteen thirties. Sure. Uh, sure. But the the idea that looking at of mangled bodies, looking at the horror of war uh, will actually turn people against war. It really just doesn't work. Um, it didn't work in the 1930s, um, and it really doesn't work today. Right. You know, and it's interesting that even in the 1930s, you had people say, you know, that we can send around all these pictures, but it's often going to do the opposite right you know it, it's going to get people particularly high school kids those you know the main audience they're going to be more attracted to the war they're going oh. to be more attracted to the gore than they are going to be you know turn away from it right well, so, it's the,
0: the same philosophy as you know in the old days i'm sure you remember you know the the highway uh, carnage movies we watched when we were in high school sure. You know, you're yeah, supposed to scare us straight, but really it's this morbid fascination with these gory sequences. And, like, mm. you can't imagine it not being the same right. in the 1930s then, with war photos.
1: And, and you know, that's something that I show kind of continues, you know, um, through you know, World War II and basically up to the present day. I end the book with uh, two images, one with, from a, actually, a white supremacy website uh of a quadruple amputee and another from the washington post of a quadruple amputee uh and they were both essentially used to make the same argument which is you know look what american war has done right? mm-hmm. they there's still you know uh if you go off to war you're going to come back looking like this you know And so people on you know, the extreme right and people sort of uh that kind of moderate left, you know, are both sort of clinging to the idea of the disabled veteran, you know, particularly the amputee, as an anti-war symbol, anti-war icon, um, you know, coming straight from the 1930s. Sure.
0: Yeah, it's this powerful passage where you cite, um, her name is Ellen Lamont, the Baltimore nurse, who volunteered Mm -hmm. for uh, service with a private hospital near Epe. And, you know, her descriptions of the the wounded disabled soldiers who came through her care is really stark. I mean, she, which is, I'm going to quote how you cite her, weak, hideous, repellent young men whose lives have been permanently transformed by war injury. It's a pretty stark observation, uh, both hers and your own. Uh, And I'm, I'm kind of struck, again, by almost the moral dimension of this judgment that she makes. Was this a mainstream view of the disabled soldier, or was this becoming something new and different? Just as, in many ways, the first world war was something new and different.
1: I don't think it was a new and different view. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, as I sort of suggest, there've often, you know, in the book, uh, there have often been very competing ideas about the disabled veteran. Because on the one hand, the disabled veteran sort of it's supposed to be the best of us, right? He's, you know, clearly the one who has given up his body, you know, who has paid with his body, um, for the nation's desires, you know, that's, I took the, the name of the book from a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, who's sort of talking about disabled veterans as paying with their bodies, yeah. you know, and, um, but on the other hand, there is this association of, you know, uh, any kind of disabled people um, with you know dependency, irrationality, uh, in some cases criminality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked early in the book about how Victorian uh, ideas about uh, the relationship between mind and body believe that you know if a broken body or an you know deformed body was indicative or a you know a sign of a deformed mind, right? right? And a deformed mind was. Know, a sign of a deformed body or a kind of sickness. So, you know, when people looked at, you know, disabled veterans, you know, on the one hand, they wanted to sort of, if they were presented, you know, uh, in a parade float, you know, covered in garlands and so forth, yes, clearly they are image, you know, the symbols of the state and uh, martial glory. On the other hand, you know, they're when they are actually encountered in the street, uh, they were often treated just like, other disabled people at a time in which you know, disability itself was heavily stigmatized. and yes. there, was, there were these kinds of connections between disability and immorality. I, I also point out something that, and I'd like to point this out to my students, which is that, you know, today, uh, we sort of treat, or at least we're um, supposed to treat you know, soldiers as the best of us. You know, they, uh, you know uh, the best Americans, and yet in the nineteenth and early twentieth century, um, being a soldier uh, was not was not looked highly upon. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. uh, soldiering was kind of a uh, you know, synonym for malingering. You know, if the idea was that if you were a soldier, you know, you couldn't really make it in the you know, commercial world and so forth, right? And right. A lot of people after World War One talked about a need to de veteranize um, soldiers. Right? That is, they, they believed that, you know, after years of being in the military where all of their decisions have been taken away, where they've been completely socialized by the state, um, they've lost all of their initiative, they've lost all their individuality, they've lost all the things that they will need in order to compete in a capitalist workplace. Um, they become dependent on the state and thus we need to, you know, as soon as they're out of uniform, we need to treat them not as veterans or not as ex-soldiers, but just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so a lot of rehabilitation and so forth was aimed at not just sort of healing soldiers' minds and bodies, but to kind of break that connection to, um, disabled veterans, right. or to the military itself. Well,
0: that kind of makes sense coming out of the, the First World War and, of course, all of the rhetoric that have been espoused publicly about, you know, the war being necessary to break the back of German militarism, and the fear, mm-hmm. of course, that that would be transplanted here after the war. That makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. I would think. Um, you know, another thing about the First World War, too, I mean, we're talking about varying degrees and categories of the severity of injury, first of all. And then the types of injury, you know, gas, mm. burns, shell shock, all of this in addition to the normal kind of, well, normal kind of injuries associated with battle. Do we see a hierarchy of injury take place?
1: Yeah, very much. I mean, it was... Uh, at the time, there were certain wounds that you wanted, you know, if you were going to have a wound, you know, hopefully you would get a blighty wound or right. a, a wound that would essentially sort of get you out of action. Um, uh,
0: shot through the hand or something, yeah.
1: Sure. You know, anything, you know, and and if you sort of ascribe to the idea of this, you know, the disabled veteran as a kind of masculine icon, maybe you might have some kind of scar or some kind of, you know, physical emblem that, that showed that you were in battle. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt used to talk about how, you know, he wished he had some disfiguring war scar to kind of prove his manliness.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but, you know, uh, a wound in battle was always a far better, uh, uh, you know, injury than a wound that uh, occurred, you know, basically training. Um, any kind of physical injury, uh, a visible injury was often viewed as uh, more masculine or more heroic than an invisible injury. And then at the bottom of the wound hierarchy, there were those that were viewed as specifically coming from uh, your own moral failings. These would include uh, wounds from uh, venereal disease. Right, uh, and of course, at the at the very very bottom of the list um, were self inflicted wounds. Right, these were absolutely the worst kinds of injuries you could get. You know, and so um, disabled injured soldiers in World War One, like injured soldiers elsewhere, talked about their wounds. They talked about the stories behind them and the stories behind them, how they got them, what they were doing, were they facing forward, were they facing backward, did it come from uh, a gun which somehow implied a kind of individual connection between the enemy and yourself versus just a piece of shrapnel, which right. could have been shot from anywhere. I mean, they they were very much invested in the idea that certain wounds uh, had more meaning, had more value than others, and would be seen as more heroic, more manly than others by uh, those on the outside. So.
0: Well, what about, again, turning back to the issue of shell shock? I was... Uh, combat neurosis viewed in this kind of nosology of uh, of injury and disability. Well,
1: I mean, it, it's really interesting because uh, you know the U.S. military and um, kind of field of military medicine, of course, is just trying to come to terms with shell shock to define you know what it actually is. Is it literally you know, like the concussive? effects of uh shell blasts, is right. it something you know neurological? And what you see if you look at uh the papers of physicians, but if you also look at hospital magazines and so forth, it's really a debate going on. Um, on the one hand you have uh advocates for those with mental injuries making a claim that you know the invisibly wounded, those who are wounded by shell shock, uh, those disabled by shell shock or by disease, uh, were just as heroic. Their claims of co- for compensation just as valid as those with more what we're seeing as more traditional or acceptable physical wounds. Uh, however, this argument uh, uh, that existed or this debate that existed sort of within uh, the community of uh, convalescing uh, soldiers, you know, uh, really didn't make its way, I would argue, that far into the broader public. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, shell shock was continued to be associated with malingering, with uh, insanity, with mental illness, with moral recent, failure. Yeah. Moral failure, you know, so that by the time you get to World War II, you still have you know, uh, General Patton slapping a soldier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> shaking, you know, and they, and I I think really it's not until um, Vietnam where uh, PTSD you know comes sort of uh, out into the open and there's a real sort of national reckoning with the kind of mental traumas that uh, war leaves in its wake.
0: Right. Well, that's yeah. Robert J. Lifton, of course, and, and sure. his work in that area. But that comes towards the end of the war, even too. Hmm. Um. That's interesting. You know, another, another injury, too, is, you know, the issue of gas injuries, which are, again, are something completely new to mm-hmm. the war. And uh, I wonder how you you found of the American community responded to these issues or this type of injury.
1: I'm not sure that I found anything uh, that tried to differentiate um between gas injuries and other kinds of injuries. Uh, the American public was very much aware of gas injuries. In fact, right. some of the more uh, famous and notable uh, uh, you know, disabled veterans were hit by gas or and, mm-hmm. and suffered from gas gangrene and so forth. Uh, but if you look at the medical papers, what you find is that few people are actually injured just by one thing. Right. Uh, so someone will be, if you look at someone's medical history, they, it will say, well, they were, you know, hit by a piece of shrapnel on this date. They had, uh, they suffered from a gas attack, you know, five weeks later. Uh, they came down with influenza sort of, you know, near the uh, end of the war. Right. And, and all, you know, and so they wind up trying to piece together these, uh, disability claims and this, you know, based upon usually not one actual incident, but a variety of them. Uh, But if you read through the files, and I spent days and days and days at the National Archives in Washington, sort of going through uh, the records of soldiers who had been uh, not only injured in combat uh, or injured at home and then rehabilitated and gone through that long process, Uh, gas injuries were... I wouldn't. I'd I'd have to look at my notes to say, Mm -hmm. see if they were the most common injuries. But uh, it was. It was really hard to find someone who wasn't gassed. It seemed. Um, And so there was a real. There had to be a recognition that this was. uh, This was a problem that had to be dealt with.
0: Well, I mean, certainly the peace movement takes up the issue of gas in the 1930s. Obviously, of course, we see that the movement around the Geneva Conventions to outlaw gas warfare. Um, Mm -hmm. Which, again, would necessitate, I would think, a recognition of the toll of that injury. But like you're you're saying, it may not necessarily translate it into a specific response by people toward victims of gas attack. Right. Right. What about the effect on ethnic communities? communities. I'm thinking immigrants, but also African-Americans. And well, what the response would be towards these disabled veterans.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, obviously there were uh, thousands of, of uh, African-Americans, you know, who were injured in some way or another uh, or who participated in some way or another in World War One, But when I was kind of going through my research, what I found was when people were starting to talk about the problem of the disabled veteran, when they were sort of formulating their vision of this crisis that faced American society, uh, they were really talking about white veterans right? Right. they were really sort of thinking about um, disabled veterans uh, that w- that was the disabled veteran they imagined when they said things like the problem of disabled veterans. Um, but of course, you know, uh, there was a good deal of attention uh, paid to African-American veterans in particular, um, but sometimes in kind of contradictory ways. You know, uh, on one hand, the rehabilitation movement, which uh, worked on which was seen as one solution to the problem-stable veteran. If you can rehabilitate a soldier, you know, turn him from a helpless cripple into a productive citizen, right, the problem-stable veteran would go away. This was the idea. Um, a lot of these, you know, uh, rehabilitation or a lot of the vocational rehabilitation would take place at individual businesses, right? So, you know, it could be a car garage where you would go and, and learn auto repair and so forth. Mm-hmm. And depending upon where you were in the United States, you know, if there was outright segregation there, um, you know, you could expect segregation in your vocational rehabilitation facilities, but often this wasn't the case. And I, I include even in the book, you know, images from uh, an art class at a YMCA in New York City, for example, um, with that is integrated, um, racially integrated and so forth. At the same time, uh, as one would expect throughout for any African American in this period, uh, they found themselves, uh, you know, cast as second class patients, second class soldiers, mm-hmm. um, and second class in terms of their, their rights, uh, you know, a number of disabled veterans were sent to the South, uh, to undergo rehabilitation where they were, you know, rehabilitated in, uh, racially segregated, you know, uh, facilities. Uh, and at one point in the book I talk about, uh, you know, basically, uh, a, a U.S. official, an African American who, you know, is sent on a tour of these facilities. Uh, and he comes back with just these horror stories of, Neglect and abuse, and uh, just decrepit facilities, and all the kinds of things that you would sort of expect. Um, so, on the one hand, there was an effort to uh, deal with or to you know help rehabilitate uh, disabled veterans of color. On the other hand, for the most part, you know they wound up you know in second-class facilities and uh, really struggling, and a lot of them. Wound up dropping out right. know, because of the struggles they had you know, getting recognition from the state. Okay. Sure,
0: sure. I can imagine that. How was the returning disabled veteran after World War I exploited by the various political interest groups after the war? I mean, it's not just a case of them being used by the anti war advocates, correct?
1: Right. Everyone uses the disabled veteran after World War I. Um, you know, uh, you have those who want to proclaim, you know, victory and proclaim the war uh, was worth it. And they would uh, use disabled veterans in parades and speeches and posters and that sort of thing. Um, you have the anti-war movement, which I've already talked about. And then, of course, you have veterans groups themselves. Um, World War I is significant because we see the birth not only of the American Legion, but uh, the uh, disabled veterans of America, or disabled American veterans. Um, and both of them saw it as their mission to uh, help the disabled veteran, um, to make sure that the nation's promises to disabled veteran were met. Uh, and, you know, they would uh, use, you know, exploit <laughs> the disabled veteran, sometimes, you know, would uh, at one point, I talk about how at a you know, a meeting in, with uh, Congress, some members of the American Legion, you know, are trying to get this bill passed. And they, uh, at a break, they run up to you know, Walter Reed and they get some disabled veterans and they wheel them out. And at at just the right moment, they sort of spring them upon the the. Uh, Politicians and say, "Look here, see, look them in the face. You know, oh, what will word. you do for them? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, they were literally political props. Um, but you know, in, in the American Legion's minds, they were political props. You know, for a purpose, right? As they would, they viewed themselves as disabled veterans' uh, guardians. But you have uh, politicians, uh, presidents who would. Have annual garden parties for disabled veterans where, you know, essentially these large photo ops in which the president would be shot, you know, uh, having tea with disabled veterans, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of show his his uh, recognition of their continued sacrifices. And then you have even, I would argue, uh, the exploitation of disabled veteran at the bonus march. Um, you know, you yeah, know, I was going to ask you about the death march. Too. Well, this is, you know, this is something, you know, that struck me. Um, You know, of course, I'm sure all of your listeners know about the bonus march. Um, But what struck me when I was reading about the rhetoric, when I was looking at some of the uh, artistic representations of disabled veterans or of the march, what I found was that so much of the rhetoric or the claims for not just the bonus, but the recognition were framed in terms of disability. In other words, the the idea was that um, all veterans, at some core level, are disabled. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, they had been off fighting while those at home had kind of made their way through the world. You know, um, earned money, gotten jobs. You know, started families. And when the veterans came back, they were left behind. Right? They were sort of in the hole, and the bonus was. Just supposed to make up for that, um, in other words, they, they had not quite they were behind their fellow Americans, and so when you know, bonus marchers would often make their claims for recognition, they would literally sort of invoke disabled veterans, sometimes they would dress up like disabled veterans or uh, walk around you know uh, on fake crutches like disabled veterans, but they would talk about themselves as, you know, if not physically disabled, then socially disabled. So the disabled veteran was a powerful kind of rhetorical tool and figure that could be used by veterans groups, by presidents, by um, you know, uh, uh, Congress people who were looking to sort of solidify you know, the military vote by anti-war groups, by all these different groups we kind of glom on to the disabled veteran as a you know, a symbol to be you know, used to promote their own agenda. Hmm.
0: Now you say that when the Depression comes along, Americans forgot the disabled doughboy. You know, it's not surprising considering the, <laughs> the immediacy of, of the Depression. But do you think it was just a case of a response to the Depression, or was this a more systemic problem underlying the place of the, the veteran, disabled veteran?
1: I think, it's, I think it's a little of both um, because what you have in the depression, at least as I see it, uh, are a couple of arguments taking place. One argument is, well, if in the 1920s, you know, disabled veterans were viewed as exceptional figures, that is, you know, they receive privileges, social benefits, disability compensation that other people including other poor people or other disabled people, simply didn't get, right? They, you know, they weren't getting pension, you know, if they were disabled on the job and so forth. You know, right. disabled veterans were. And uh veterans groups like the American Legion and the DAV were, uh played an important role in in helping them maintain that exceptional status. Well, when the Depression hit, you had a number of people, including FDR, say, well, look, now, we're all essentially in a bad place. We're all essentially disabled. And like, there's, there's, you know, there's no exceptions anymore. And he, you know, cut a lot of benefits to disabled veterans because, you know, we all have to struggle now. Right. Um, and, you know, disabled veterans and their advocates push back against that, you know, because they feared the idea that if, in bad times, disabled veterans lost their exceptional status, you know, they would sort of lose it forever. Right. Uh, but then at the same time, you had, you know, uh, as time went on, a very real sense among disabled veterans that they had been forgotten about, that the, the United States had essentially moved on to other problems. The American Legion and other groups, um Tried to keep the memory of the war alive, uh, but, you know, through Armistice Day and through, you know, the selling of forget-me-not flowers and all these kinds of things, uh, but I will say that the disabled or the forgotten disabled doughboy, uh, was basically about the most remembered forgotten person there could be, <laughs> uh, because, uh, Disabled veteran might have been forgotten, but the forgotten disabled veteran wasn't, uh, <laughs> because they would always, you know, remind people, "Hey, you've forgotten us. You've forgotten us. Remember last year at the, you know, holiday, you forgot us then, and now you're continuing." At some point, you know, they have to remember. <laughs> uh, but they remember the the lesson was not to remember them, but to remember that so you forgot um,
0: them. Yeah, that
1: you'd forgotten us. That to remember that. You know, we had given something that the rest of the nation had, and we had paid with our bodies, right? We were exceptional. And more than us as individuals, it's that, that lesson, um, our status as deserving of these privileges and exceptions. Like, that's what really needed to be remembered, um, right. in part because they recognized that they weren't going anywhere. Um, that unless they won the battle of memory, um, they would be in very dire straits because they knew that just because you 're disabled, I mean you might be disabled at the age of twenty well you 've got to fend for yourself for the next fifty years, and if people forget about you know why you you know became injured or if you somehow faded into the broader you know a uh, community of disabled people that Americans didn't really care about anyway mm-hmm. um, then that was that was a real threat to you so you had to constantly remind people of what your what your disability meant right so memory became an incredibly important sort of uh, terrain uh, upon which you know various groups battled it out you know in the 1930s and to this day
0: right right how does the image of the disabled veteran influence American attitudes in the period towards war in the period just before Pearl Harbor, and then after that during the Second World War? I mean, is that memory you talk about forgotten it, memory? Is it pu- pushed aside for the new experience, or
1: I mean, I I would argue it's there. I mean, uh, uh, Americans, you know, uh, six months before Pearl Harbor were overwhelmingly against intervention in World War II right there there still was a real tangible sense of you know the the past sacrifices and injuries of not just World War 1 but Spanish-American War and even even the Civil War I mean this this was a history that was still alive for many Americans uh and yet with Pearl Harbor uh, it doesn't drop out entirely it, you know Plenty of scholars have written about anti-war movements and uh, conscientious objectors and that sort of thing, but it really becomes overwhelmed, right. and uh, it is sort of pushed to the side so that any kind of question about you know uh, sacrifice or any, you know uh, any kind of questioning of the war um, is almo- is so devalued that it's almost viewed as criminal, you know, uh, right. anti patriotic. Uh, and and I think this this sort of you know the disabled veteran you know I I kind of make an argument in the book you know that in some ways this idea of the problem of the disabled veteran this the social crisis kind of flares up you know it it dies down and then flares up again you know and it and it sort of um, I sort of suggest you know it, it kind of blossomed after World War One and then it gets swamped by the good war and by the kind of triumphalist what tom Engelhard calls victory culture that comes in the aftermath right but then it starts to bubble back after korea and then it explodes again after vietnam right and so, you know uh and then it kind of dies down after the first gulf war in which at least at first there didn't seem to be many disabled veterans and now of course it's back you know it's it's back uh you know uh And it's as, in some ways, as troubling as ever, you know. And so in some ways, like, the problem with disabled veterans is less about the actual number of disabled veterans, but whether or not Americans view those injuries as having been worth it.
0: Right. Well, it's also a matter, too, I think, of how, you know, redefining our classification of injury. And, sure, and military disability, and we see that with the now. You mentioned the first Gulf War and the relative lack of of casualties until we begin to reclassify individuals who claim you know to have real or uncertain exposure to chemical agents, right, in, in that conflict. Yeah, and you know, are they disabled? How do we treat them yeah. as disabled veterans?
1: And I mean, when you know you have I. I you know, at the very end of the book, I, I'm talking about sort of ways in which, uh, the problem disabled veteran was, uh, you know, attempts to solve it after Vietnam. And of course, one way to solve it is to, in this was the theory, was to professionalize the U.S. military, right? So that, you know, it no longer becomes a question of citizen soldiers. It becomes, well, whatever is happening, this is happening to professionals. And then if you can, Somehow, uh, limit the number of U.S. casualties, right? You know, casualty reduction, Mm -hmm. either by limiting the number of people exposed to the dangers of war or replacing them with, say, machines, technology, drones, and so forth. Um, These become ways, not necessarily of solving the individual issues and, you know, hardships of the people who continue to be wounded in war um, by the Thousands, right? But this becomes where this was seen as a way of eliminating, you know, this broader sense of social crisis around them. Right. You know, and I kind of see, you know, that that Gulf War is, you know, uh, we have solved that problem, but of course, you know, it's back.
0: Uh, well, that's the question: Did we really solve it? I mean, you know right. that how you know advances in therapeutic and diagnostic medicine, new rehabilitative methods. No, they, they actually failed to deliver the changes oh, yeah. that we expected. Know, it was even I, I, realistic to expect that.
1: And I think you, you know, in some ways, I, I, I think, particularly in my teaching, but in the book as well, I kind of come off as um, somewhat hard on the American public in the sense of this kind of constant, you know, this expectation that, uh, you know, we support our troops, we love our troops, we're doing everything we can. And then suddenly we're shocked and outraged when we have a Walter Reed scandal. Uh, and I point out how well there were Walter Reed scandals, you know, in the 1920s, in the 1940s, the 1950s, in and the, the 1990s. There
0: were yeah, exactly. <laughs> were I mean, it's,
1: it's, you know somehow, and it would be easy for us to think that you know, like oh, well, we just bury our heads in the sand, we don't care about them, we forget about them, and then suddenly we act shocked when. It, you know, we discover what we should have known all along. On the other hand, I think that I'm not sure the American public can really be blamed. You know, if you look, watch, you know, and I've seen so many of these, you know, 60 Minutes and Frontline and, and uh, Time magazine stories about um, disabled veterans. And they're all about the wonders of technology, right? The latest prosthetics with computer chips and, you know, space-age skin grafts and, you know, uh, 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 computerized kind of uh, uh, gait analysis and all these kinds of, you know, amazing robotics. And it would be easy to watch these sorts of things and to go to a Major League Baseball game where, you know, a disabled veteran comes out and you know, part of the tickets go to the Wounded Warrior Project and that sort of thing. Walk away thinking that well, we must be doing everything, right? You know, I've seen so many stories. You know, I'm 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 told again and again about all this amazing technology that makes it it's almost better than real bodies. You know, and you know, uh, I go and I see disabled veterans you know receiving applause at the airport, right? So we must be doing. Things right, right? You know, and I I think a lot of people just think that way. In in, so that's part of that gap we started out with between the reality and the actuality. You know, because we've been, you know, if not trained, then our culture tends to uh, give us continues to give us this very uplifting story that the solution to any disabled veterans' problems are just around the corner with the latest bit of technology, with the latest bit of social engineering. And social well, that's stuff. part of the problem,
0: I guess, you know, if, if you want to look at it as a problem, you know, that we've, we've crafted this positivist narrative that we expect to have you know, miraculous or near-miraculous near change, not only in the technology, but then by extension how we view... Our responsibility or our obligation to the veterans. Somebody's doing it. Somebody, there has to be this hospital that's doing all these things. When in Mm -hmm. reality, there really isn't. And we delude ourselves to thinking there is.
1: And I think this is another, you know, uh, another impact of the professionalization of the military. You know, it's easy to kind of start with a cliche that in World War II, everyone would have known had someone in their family who was in the military, you know, and obviously that's not always the case, but really, I mean, I, I think it would have been very, very difficult, even if you lived in a small town or you lived in a big city, in, to not have some kind of personal connection to, if not people who are, you know, actually fighting, then we're serving in some capacity or another in the military. Sure. Uh, I don't think that's the case today. I think, you know, certainly in in parts of the country, in places like Oklahoma, where there seems to be almost an over-representation of uh, people in the military. Well, New York City
0: Um, as well. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how many, you know, young men and women from urban environments volunteer Mm -hmm. for service. and. Yeah, we always focus on the people from Oklahoma or Virginia sure. or Pennsylvania. Well, they're coming out of LA and
1: Chicago mm-hmm. and New York City. Oh, yeah, LA in particular. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, it's just, uh, so it would be, I think in, for a lot of people, it would be easy to make the assumption that, well, we must be doing something because they're not actually encountering, um, right. not just disabled veterans, but any disabled or military families or anyone, you know, to kind of tell them differently, right? They, all they know is the story of these space aged uh, prosthetics. They don't necessarily know the story of, you know, Hey, I was, you know, I was trying to get compensation for my injury. I have these headaches. I have these spells, you know, I'm feeling angry all the time. Right. Uh, I think it's traumatic brain injury, but you know, the doctors say it's, it's nothing like they don't, we don't see the stories of the red tape. We don't see the stories. Not of until
0: people. it's too late, and that's turned sure, somehow exactly tragic. Right. Yeah.
1: So it, and I almost think that's somewhat intentional. <laughs> I mean, sure. it, it it makes it easier for us to kind of go to war as a society it's, it's when we feel less invested in it, right? And yeah. in a way that, uh I mean, it's it's you know I try to tell my students, you know, that. When we think about America at war during World War II and America at war during the War on Terror, these are very different experiences. Yeah. I mean, the war would have been impossible to ignore uh, in 1944 in the United States, whereas you know, in 2004, uh, one could go about one's life and not really see any of it, not really think about any of it. You know, and that's and that kind of. Ignorance is what allows sort of you know, uh, these things, these problems to keep going and going. Sure.
0: Yeah, I want to bring up this one last point you raise. I, sure. I love the way you weave this into the conclusion, where you close by bringing up of all things, the science fiction film Avatar, which presents a paraplegic soldier who can continue to serve through this complex neurological link to a surrogate body. You know, this mm. is all space opera, right. obviously. But it does point towards a very real future where physically disabled soldiers can continue to wage war through remotely piloted vehicles. Now, you know, this opens up a whole lot of questions about the legality or the morality of that type of thing. But on a personal level, is this really the desirable outcome for wounded soldiers? You know, rather than being invalided, inval- invalided out of service, that they're somehow cycled back into this utilitarian role. And what does that do to the question of the disabled soldier?
1: I don't know. You know, that's, I mean, I can't speak personally for um, disabled veterans and how they would feel about it. And I don't know anyone who's actually written about that. Um, there have At some level, there's always been an effort to do this, right, to find other kinds of military roles for disabled veterans, depending upon really how much manpower was needed. Um, And you can find examples of this, you know, Civil War even. Uh, But, but no, I I do think this is very much new terrain, and and it kind of gets to something that I was pointing at toward the end of the book, as you said, um, which is about sort of the question of, the body, right? How much body do you need in order to wage war? How much how much body um you know how much you know uh in terms of physical ability, right? Which is so for so long been kind of a, a standard for, you know, your uh you know worth in terms of uh military participation, you know, what if that goes away? Um what are we left with? You know, is is war to be, you know, uh, waged simply by minds? You know, is it is is this, as you said, a solution, or you know, is this just kind of a another way of you know, half solving the problem? I I don't know. You know, I was just sort of struck by um, this, in part because it it reaches back toward this. Story that I try to kind of trace throughout the whole book and maybe it kind of drops out in places of this dream of disappearing disability. Right? The, the rehabilitation movement was all about the notion that if you are injured and you're rehabilitated, you know your disability in effect disappears. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this, this dream is still with us and it, it's also part of the problem because one thing that disabled veterans will tend to say over and over again is that it doesn't disappear. You know, they, the war continues to live on in my body, in my yeah. injured body, you know? And so, I don't know. I think that that's you know a fascinating topic. I wish I had a, a question. I wish I had a better answer for it. Um, but I, I think those are going to be interesting issues for people who look back at the 21st century and, and start asking about, you know what does it mean to be injured in war? What does it mean to participate in war? Um, and to what extent, you know, is war is war embodied you know, right. anymore? Now, as we bring this to a
0: close, John, I want to ask you our two wrap-up questions. Um, you know, first of all, what are you reading now that you would recommend to our listeners? And then, second, what's your next project going to be? What are you cons- conceptualizing now?
1: Okay. Um, well, in terms of reading, you know, the semester has just started. So <laughs> You're I'm reading student reading
0: papers, yeah.
1: That I'm reading student papers, but I I will say that I just finished uh, reviewing Lee Pennington's uh, new book, "Casualties of History: Wounded Japanese Servicemen and the Second World War," and and he really looks at how uh, you know, the evolution of ideas about Disabled veterans in World War ii of Japan, and how that uh, the policies uh, around Japanese servicemen changed after uh, U.S. occupation. Um, I think it's a really, I think it's a really great study. Um, you know, I hope it might be a, a nice kind of complement to what I'm trying to do uh, in my book. And I think that uh, if you know my book, or if you know Beth Linker's book, uh, I think, and you like them, Casualties of History uh, is a great place to go next.
0: Okay, okay. And then the second question, what are you working on next?
1: Uh, Well, I'm trying to finish up what has been a long-standing project uh, uh, book on the history of zoos during World War II. Um, I'm looking at uh, not only what happened to zoos during World War II, some were bombed, some were looted, some were shut down, uh, some were turned into victory gardens and so forth, um, but also how uh, World War II reshaped uh, the global animal trade and uh, uh, reshaped uh, the global zoo industry, you know, from one that was focused or centered primarily on Europe, especially Germany, mm-hmm. uh, to one that, after the war, I would argue, um, uh, focused on places like San Diego. And so I, I'm continuing to look at the cultural dimensions and the cultural aftermath of war, uh, in this case, moving from uh, wounded soldiers into uh, wounded animals uh, and uh, the history of the zoo.
0: That's interesting. Senator, so good luck with that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, yeah it's a very enlightening discussion. You know, good luck on the next project. And to all of our listeners, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off for new books in military history. Thank you all for listening.